let's uh, turn uh, with a view to God's self to Exodus chapter 3. And at verse 2. Exodus 3 and verse 2. Where we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So the angel of the Lord appears in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And as Moses looks, the bush is burning with fire, but the bush is not consumed. Now, just as I mentioned uh, before the reading, uh, with God's help, we saw last time how Moses' attempt uh, to help the Lord's people uh, went so badly wrong. And as a result of that, as a result of his own intervention, uh, trying to help the people, he finds himself rejected, as it were, by both camps. Uh, the world in which he had been comfortable for 40 years had now turned hostile against him. He wasn't wanted by Egypt, but amazingly, although he had made the choice inwardly to suffer affliction with God's people, God's people didn't want him. Uh, the church effectively rejects him because she is still too sleepy and too spiritually dull to recognize the call of God in the life of Moses. And as we saw last week, Stephen makes very plain in the New Testament that they were culpable for that. They should have recognized God at work in Moses, but they did not. So he's rejected by the world and by the church. And sometimes you might find yourself as a Christian too, uh, for some reason rejected for some time by the people of God or by the congregation of the Lord's people and that calls for great faith and great patience but that's probably for another time. So effectively Moses finds himself a fugitive in Midian that's in the Sinaitic Peninsula where he will spend the next 40 years. Now this period of time is passed over really in, in relative silence. But it's enough to say, and, and the Bible more or less says it, that God is with him in that period of time. He first of all leads him to the house of a man of God in Midian, someone who is actually a priest of God. And Moses ends up marrying one of his daughters. Also in that period of time, he has two sons, uh, Gershon and later Eliezer and he also finds employment shepherding the flock of Reuel, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. Now it's a strange period in his life, one that we forget ourselves really ever took place and I suppose the way Moses felt about it is reflected, and this happens so often in the Bible, it's reflected in the names that he gives his sons. 
He calls the first one Gershom, which means a stranger in the land, because that's how he feels. Uh, very often Moses must have asked, what am I doing here? What is it that has brought me here? And what does God mean by placing me in this place where I am a stranger? His second son, born later, is called Eliezer, related to the name Lazarus, which means God is my helper. And I think in all probability there's a progression there. His initial sense is one of discomfort and dislocation. But through time he knows that whatever it means, that God is still with him and God is still blessing and helping him. And that's very often what we find in situations like that. Little by little, God makes himself known in these circumstances where we feel so strange. But as again I referred to last time, God is working at both ends of the line, as he always does. Way back in Egypt, at last God's people are beginning to pray. And it's significant, although they had fallen into bondage and for a time at least genocide, at last they are praying and calling upon the name of God. It's interesting that it's at the end of Exodus 2 we find that, not in Exodus 1, because sometimes it takes a long time for the people of God to recognize their backslide slidden condition all their bondage and to really call upon God in prayer uh, it hasn't happened yet in our country uh, we can certainly be complaining about the situation and the political circumstances and so on but none of it has yet brought us to earnest prayer but gradually God is bringing his people to that point and again during this 40 years God is further working in Moses' life. I'm sure, now I, I don't mean to teach this as something definitely taught in the Word of God, I'm only giving my opinion here, but I think it's quite possible that Moses <coughs> may have felt that he had been mistaken himself regarding the precise nature of his own call. Certainly, we're told that it came into his heart to visit his brethren. And that's what he had tried to do, to visit them by helping them and calling them out of bondage and into the glorious liberty of the people of God. Of course, it had gone so far wrong that it's very easy for Moses to conclude, well, I must have got that part of it wrong. Maybe I was meant to visit or to help in some other way. Surely my circumstances now are a proof that I was not really meant to call the people of God out of Egypt and into the land of promise. One of the reasons I would say that to you is because when God does come back to him here 40 years later, Moses has no inclination to go back to Egypt. He has no conception of himself as the person that God is going to use to deliver Israel from Egypt, and hence the thought that I must have got that part of it wrong. It was in my heart, and it was good that it was in my heart to visit the people, and maybe I should have visited them otherwise. But deliverance will be by the hand of somebody else. But friends, eh, God is never in a hurry. 
Never in a hurry, not like we are in a hurry. Forty years is a long time for Moses in Midian. And for us, looking at the history, 40 years is a long time for Moses and Midian. I mean, who on earth is 40 years between his call and starting to work on his call? But God is not in a hurry. A day for him is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And the fact of the matter is that even though Moses was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt, that does not equip him really to lead the people of God. It's the wilderness that shapes a person for that. The most important lessons that we learn are not the ones that fill our heads with knowledge, but that make our character grow. These are the real important lessons. These are often learned in the wilderness. They're often learned on our own with God, and they're learned over a fairly lengthy period of time. And the fact of the matter again is that When Moses did return to Egypt 40 years later, the anger that he had shown in killing the Egyptian had been transformed into meekness and humility. So much so that the Bible tells us he was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And what's more, the fear that he had shown in running away from the face of Pharaoh had been converted into great courage. He was able to stand before the face of Pharaoh and do the work of God. Now, I'm not saying that that's how Moses felt about himself after 40 years. If you had had come to Moses after 40 years in Midian and said, right, Moses, do you think now that you're able to go down and finish what you started 40 years ago? He would have said, certainly not. But that's how God wants us to feel. God wants us to feel empty in ourselves. The strength of God is always made perfect in our weakness. Always. It never flourishes God's strength where we ourselves are strong. That just gets, can I say respectfully, just gets in God's way. What God needs to do or what we need to do is purge ourselves from self and be filled with a sense of inadequacy for God to really do the work. That's sometimes why I I marvel at, you know, questions that I've given people, for example, when they're applying for the ministry. Questions that appear now in forms that never used to be in forms, like, tell us what gifts you have that make you feel you are so suitable for this calling. (laughs) Any true minister should leave that box blank, really. Should leave the box blank. And it's strange that people should put such a question in a box, but that's by the by. But after 40 years, the fact was that Moses was ready. And he was ready in God's eyes. And that is why he comes to him and he visits him in the Sinaitic wilderness. So we're effectively fast-forwarding to the 80th year of Moses' life. I think I said at a prayer meeting just a few weeks back that it's encouraging to see sometimes in the Word of God how it's in the last part of their lives that God's people are most fruitful. I, I think I made the reference in connection with Caleb at 85 years of age. He was ready to do the work of God as he had been when he was just 40. Moses famously begins his real life's calling at 80. 
and he lives to 120. That means that it's really the last third of his life that is the most fruitful. So if you live to 90, that means that 60 to 90 may be the most fruitful years of your life. It's well worth thinking of that because sometimes when you pass 60, or maybe when you pass 50, you may be tempted to feel, well, that's, that's maybe the bulk of my life over, and it's certainly my life's work over, and whatever I've been going to do for the Lord, I've done it now. It's over and it's finished. But it's the last third of his life that was the most fruitful. So let's remember these things and stop writing off God's power to do things with us, whether in public or in private, in the advanced years of our lives. Now, friends, every new stage in our Christian experience always begins with a a fresh encounter with God. Our Christian life itself begins with an encounter with God, and every new stage begins in the same way, a fresh encounter with God. And that, of course, is what this is. Although we're told in verse 2 that it is the angel of the Lord that appears in a flame of fire, we're told in verse 4 that when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. So this angel of the Lord is the special angel of the covenant that appears in the Old Testament every now and again. He carries a capital A when it is the special angel. This special angel is the special messenger of the covenant who is in fact himself divine. That's very clear on every occasion on which we meet him, whether outside Abraham's tent or wrestling with Jacob or here in the burning bush. He is divine. And the reason he is the angel is because he is coming from God as a divine person with a message. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word has always been not just with God, but towards ourselves. This is the second person of the Trinity communicating with his people even before he comes enfleshed, incarnate. So it is the angel, the second person of the Trinity, that here appears in a flame of fire and speaks to Moses. Now, like many encounters with God. Um, This one comes unexpectedly. Sometimes God uh, comes to us, speaks to us at night, perhaps lying in our beds. On other occasions, he can bring us to himself, just like he's brought you today where God is present. God is present in the worshipping assemblies of his people, so he has brought you here today Now, he's speaking to you here today whether you're sensible of that or not, but sometimes he he may meet with you in a particular way in the public means of grace, speaking to your own soul, challenging your own soul in a very personal way. Moses, Moses. 
And uh, even though we are in a congregation of the Lord's people, the Lord has a way of encountering yourself as though there was no one else in the building but yourself. When he wants to, when he wants to get a hold of yourself, he will call you, as it were, by name. You will feel that, that this word and this message is very much for me. Some of you may have been especially conscious of that when you were converted. I've often heard people say that I felt when I was in the church that there was nobody in the church but myself because God was addressing you personally. Sometimes God, of course, visits dramatically like this. Other times it's more the still, small voice. And in this case, Moses is not expecting anything. He is simply shepherding the flock in the Sinaitic wilderness in the Horeb range of which Mount Sinai is a part. Sometimes the Horeb range actually gives its name to this mountain. Sometimes it's called Mount Horeb. Sometimes it's called Mount Sinai. It's referred to here as the mountain of God in, by way of anticipation. It isn't at this point the mountain of God, but it will be. In fact, this is the mountain um, shortly afterwards where Moses will take the children of Israel and where God will come down and again in fire and he will give them the law. Ten Commandments, and so on. But at this point, it's just an ordinary mountain. Moses doesn't associate the mountain with anything at all, and he takes the flock of Jethro around the back side of this mountain, and he sees something remarkable. He sees a bush in the middle of nowhere just burning with fire, a common acacia or thorn bush. Now, some say that it's not impossible to see a burning bush spontaneously combusting in a, in a hot desert. Now, there is argument about that, and to be honest, I don't know. I mean, I'm not qualified to say one way or another. But I do know that this one has nothing to do with spontaneous combustion. I mean, that, that has relevance as to the degree to which Moses is surprised to see a burning bush. I would reckon he would be surprised anyway. But what surprises him is not so much that he sees a bush in flame, but the fact that it just simply stays that way. Mysteriously, however much the fire rages, the bush just remains. It remains unchanged. Nec tamen consume batter. It was not, however, consumed. And Moses is so intrigued by this sight that he turns aside to see it. And it's at that point that the encounter with God really begins. Now, I want to look with you at this encounter, perhaps for a while. It reaches, after all, from chapter 3 right down into chapter 4 and way down to verse 17 there. So that's a, a long space and really, obviously, it's far too much to look at in one or even two sermons. So we'll look at it, God willing, for a while. But this morning I just want to focus on the bush itself. Why is it there? Why does God again to speak with reverence? Why, why does he bother to appear in a burning bush? Why does he choose to appear that way? What's the message behind it? Now I think here it's easy to be diverted by the fire. The 
common understanding, I think, of the burning bush is that it represents the church in the fire of persecution. That's why I think it's become one of the symbols of the Presbyterian church down through the ages. You will sometimes find a a picture of a burning bush on pulpits, on magazines or whatever as an image of the church in the fire of persecution but still not being consumed. And that of course fits with the experience of the people of God in Egypt burning in the intense persecution of Pharaoh and his government but still not consumed. Now, friends, there's something there undoubtedly on the right lines, but it's not really what the burning bush means. To understand that properly, we need to separate out the fire and the bush in a particular way. Notice that verse 2 tells us that the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So the presence of God is specially tied to the fire, not to the bush. The angel appeared in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. The second verse, you don't need to turn to it, is a verse that occurs later in Deuteronomy. When Moses is near death at 120, he blesses all the tribes, gives them all a distinct blessing, and of Joseph... Well, for Joseph, he prays that the tribes of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, would know the favour of the one who dwelt in the bush. That they would know the goodwill of him, that is God, who dwelt in the bush. So that is clearly dividing the fire and the bush. The fire is God. The fire is the presence of God. The bush is not. Certainly the fire is in the bush. The fire dwells in the bush, but the bush is not God. But the fire very much is God. Now let's look first at the fire. He appears in a flame of fire. Now, friends, I'm sure you're aware that the presence of God is often associated with fire in the Bible. Right from the beginning, really, it's interesting that the presence of God that guarded the Garden of Eden uh, was a flaming sword that turned every way, a revolving sword of justice. But from that point onwards, even to the point where God comes down later on Mount Sinai to deliver the law, his presence is associated with fire. And the fundamental lesson being conveyed by the fire, which I'm sure you know, is the holiness of God. Which is the fundamental lesson we need to learn about God. Before we learn anything else about him, we learn his transcendence, his otherness, that he is not like ourselves. As God said to the people in in Psalm 50, he said, you thought that I was altogether like yourself. You began to think that I think like you, that I judge like you, that I evaluate things like you, that I weigh sins just like you weigh sins, that I think of them in the way that you think of them. The fundamental thing we need to learn is that God is other, is holy, high and lifted up, 
and our first encounter with God is always like that. That's the number one lesson. And it's the number one lesson that needs to remain. The fire represents the holiness of God, especially in opposition to what is contrary to it. His holiness in opposition to sin, and therefore needing to judge sin to consume it. (coughs) Because this fire that goes before him in Psalm 97, it burns up his foes round about. That's why it's usually called in the scripture a consuming fire. It's consumptive. It must lick up and devour whatever is inconsistent with itself. It cannot endure sin, unholiness, unrighteousness, brutality, tyranny, theft, lying, cheating, whatever it is, it must lick it up, it must devour it. This holiness is everything. That's why Moses, after this point, more than once refers to God as a consuming fire. The fire that just licks up everything. And to know God properly, to worship God properly, to serve God properly, requires that we understand this, the holiness of God. And it's interesting that it's a truth that he impresses upon us at the start of things. At the start of our Christian life, we are convicted of sin before the holiness of God. If we are called to special service for God, we are again powerfully impressed with his holiness. Or if we are being restored after a period of coolness and backsliding, God impresses his holiness upon us. Here's an example. After 40 years in Midian, God has something for Moses to do, so let him remember that God is holy. When Isaiah was being called to the ministry, his first vision was the exaltation of God, his glorious holiness, and he becomes deeply aware of that. When Peter was called to the ministry, he fell in front of Christ and said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. When Paul was converted, he was surrounded by a blazing light representing the glorious holiness of Christ. That's what he saw when he was converted and called to the ministry. And, of course, the appropriate response to God's holiness is always reverence and humility. When John sees him in the book of Revelation, he falls down on his face. When Isaiah sees him high and lifted up, all he can say is, woe to me, because you are calling me to speak in your name, and all I can see is the uncleanness of my own lips. Or Moses here, we're told, specifically in connection with Moses at the end of verse 6, that Moses hid his face and that he was afraid to look upon God. And far from discouraging that impression, God enforces it. He says, don't come any closer to me than this, verse 5. In fact, he says, take your shoes off your feet. I'm sure that perhaps the symbolism involved there, but although I'm saying I'm sure, again, I'm only suggesting this, that the symbolism is to do with 
the sandals representing just his life in the world. And he has, to, he has to put that aside when he is in the special presence of God. We, we put aside defilements and contacts of that kind and we consecrate ourselves absolutely to the God who demands our attention and who demands his own worship. Keep your distance lest you be consumed. Interestingly enough, just a few months after this, when Moses leads the people of Israel to this, to this mountain, Sinai, and God's presence comes down with fire on the top of the mountain, that Israel are told not to come any nearer to the mountain than they are, lest they be consumed. Again, it is the holiness of God's presence. So Moses here is seeing a holy God. And unless we see that, we never see him at all. But he also sees a bush. What is the bush? What does the bush represent? Well, again, we go back to what Moses said when he was blessing the tribe of Joseph. He spoke of the blessing of him who dwells in the bush. Now, the word dwell, the verb, the Hebrew verb, shakan, is a word that you might know because you might often have heard of the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God is the glory that dwells. The glory that, the fiery cloud that dwelt in the holy place, sorry, in the holy of holies, in both the tabernacle and the temple. It was God dwelling in the midst of his people. Of his people. When God dwells, He's covenantally coming in his holiness to reside amongst his people. That seems almost paradoxical. In fact, that's jumping ahead of where we are because it is paradoxical. Here you have the God who is a consumptive, consuming fire coming to dwell among his people. His people. And here his people are represented by a simple thorn bush. Uh, an acacia bush that is so weak and fragile, nothing in itself. There's no doubt in my mind that the, that the bush is meant to convey God's people in their weakness and in their need. I mean, sometimes God's people are compared to substantial things, like the palm tree or like the cedar that grows in Lebanon. These are solid, substantial trees. And from one point of view, God's people need to be presented like that. That's what God makes us. But in ourselves, that's not what we are. We're just weak and frail and supremely combustible. If a fire is going to rage in an acacia bush, it's going to destroy it. It's in a moment of time. But that's what we are in ourselves. But here God is dwelling among his people and dwelling in their hearts. But that is a paradox. A consuming fire dwelling amongst a combustible people. Very often this question is asked in the Bible. You see, <clears throat> how can God dwell with me? When David was taking the ark of God up to Jerusalem, there was great joy and rejoicing and things weren't done right. The ark wasn't being carried the way it was supposed to be carried. It wasn't being carried by the Levites. 
Um, sacrifices were being offered. Some things were right, but some things were wrong. And, you know, when you lose sense of God's holiness, you tend to say, well, that doesn't matter to God, you see, because God just looks at the heart. And providing our intention is to bring the ark up to Jerusalem and to worship God, then God is happy with that. So the ark was carried not by the Levites holding poles, which is what God said should happen, but it was actually placed on a cart, respectful enough, a cart that was carried by oxen. Respectful enough, but that's how the Philistines had transported the ark. Isn't that interesting? They were quick to learn how the Philistines did it. And they incorporated the Philistine practice into what they did themselves. So there they were rejoicing, going up to Jerusalem. The oxen stumble. The ark seems to tip over. Uzzah, a good man, I believe. Why not? A good man puts out his hand to steady the ark of God and he falls down dead in the middle of the assembly. Tens of thousands of people stop singing and they stop rejoicing because God has intervened like a fire, like a consuming holiness. He has come into the assembly. And David's response first was anger. When God struck Uzzah, he said, how can this ark of God come to me? And he arranged for the ark to go to the house of a man called Obedido, who must have been a holy man. And in fairness, David must have thought he was a holy man, unless he was wanting him destroyed, which would be contrary to the spirit of everything. He must have thought of him as a holy man. He said, it can't come to me. How can this ark of God come to me? How can this God come to me? For three months, David went home until he was brought to a place where he realized that he was responsible for Uzzah's death. He was responsible for God's anger. He was responsible for the outbreak of wrath that day. And next time he organized the procession to go back to Jerusalem, the Levites were carrying the ark, the way God said so, because God cares. And when God gives a command, he cares about it. We're always to remember that. Who can dwell with this God? Good question. Isaiah famously asked in chapter 33, who can dwell with everlasting burnings? Who can dwell with everlasting burnings? Who can? Well, you can. And I can. If we are in Christ Jesus. If we have come to know God through the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, then the fact of the matter is, and consider this, that this consuming fire comes to reside in your heart. comes to burn. Fire is a dangerous thing. In its place, it's great. Out of control, well, out of our control, uh, it's a really dangerous thing. But a fire in the heart is good. I have come to send fire on the earth, said Jesus, and how I wish it were already kindled. The fact is that God comes to dwell in his holiness in your heart and mine as Christians. And indeed, he comes to dwell in our congregations. And that is what the writer to the Hebrews wants us to understand. There's always been a tendency to think that God is 
not quite the same under the new covenant as he was under the old. And the worship of God is not quite the same. Well, yes, some things have changed. A priesthood has gone. Well, it hasn't gone. It's been replaced by the priesthood of Christ, if you think of it that way. The sacrifices have gone. Yes, yes, it's changed like that. But the nature of the God we're approaching hasn't changed. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says, let us serve God. Now, the word behind serve there is the word liturgy. It's the word from which we get liturgy. So let us worship God. That's what he's saying. Let us draw near to God carefully. Let's draw near to God carefully with reverence, he says, and with godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Not was a consuming fire sometime long ago, but he remains a consuming fire. And so the God to whom we come is a God who remains a consuming fire. Now, what effect should that have on us today? Well, strangely enough, it should have a twofold effect of fear and confidence. What a strange mix that is. Uh, God's spices are strange spices. They really are. Rejoice with trembling, God says. A strange mix that is. Rejoice with trembling. We'll, we'll sing that at the end of the service, God willing. Rejoice with trembling. How do you do that? How do you have fear with confidence? Well, God's people understand what this means. Fear and reverence. First in our congregation, when we draw near to God, God doesn't require us to put off our shoes off our feet. But he still requires reverence and godly fear. That's probably why most of us changed our clothes or put on distinctive clothes today. As, as long as cultures have a distinction between formal and informal clothing, we will always wear formal clothing. We will, we will give God something that corresponds to the occasion, not casual, but formal, because meeting with God is not casual. It struck me once hearing somebody who was in Scotland from Uganda tell me of the poverty of the people in Uganda was shocking in the area where it was. The poverty of the children was shocking, but they still had two items of clothing, one for the week and one for the Lord's Day. And it really struck me how, how, how built in it is in our psyche that as long as we make distinctions in clothing, we will make them in connection with the house of God and we will give them him what is our due. Uh, some men here wore a head covering coming to church. You took it off when you came in. As a woman, you put it on. That has something to do with the presence of God in your worship. But the same is true with this fire that burns in your heart. Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. Isaiah says sanctify him that's strange isn't it is he not sanctified already well absolutely but when it says you sanctify him what that means is you set him you consider him as set apart you consider him as holy in your heart when we forget that God has to deal with us you thought I was like yourself I will remind you otherwise. And God has a way of reminding us like he reminded David. But 
it also inspires confidence. Why? Well, friends, the wonderful thing is this, that once you do come to Christ by faith, from that point onwards, God's holiness is always on your side. It's always for you, and it's not against you. Whatever comes your way, this fire will actually only purify and purge you. It'll never consume you. Never, ever consume you. It will simply purify and purge you. You know, I mentioned earlier that fire depends on how it's used and where it is. I mean, if, if you were going to inhabit a house where there was a plague, you'd have been glad to hear that there had been a fire gone through it because that's dealt with what was unclean and impure. Fire cleanses. It doesn't just destroy, but it cleanses. It cleanses the things that remain. It cleanses what is good. And that's the way that God works in ourselves. God allows fiery experiences in our lives. But as Peter tells us, they're there to purify us. The only thing that is licked up and consumed is your greed, your tendency to lie, materialism, your irreverence. Everything about you and me that is not right, that's all that's destroyed. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were cast into the burning fiery furnace, the only thing that was burnt was their chains. As far as they themselves were concerned, there wasn't even the smell of burning in their heads. Just the chains. A purifying flame, which is what God is for his people. Now, let me close with this, because Moses probably wonders during these 40 years, I'm sure he says, <clears throat> Why? Why another 40 years of misery? Why is Egypt prospering for another 40 years? And why is the church suffering for another 40 years? These people that, that you called me to help, why is it that you've let them go further down? Why is the fire of Pharaoh consuming them? God is effectively saying it's not. It's my fire. And what I'm doing, he says, is I'm, I'm cleansing them. And when I'm finished that cleansing work, they'll come out of Egypt as a refined people. Far from consuming them, God actually says in verse 7, now listen to how wonderful these words are. In verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, and this is in connection with the burning bush, I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry. And I know their sorrows. Now isn't that wonderful? Because at one level you could say that God is not seeing the sufferings of his people. That he's not hearing their prayers. And that he doesn't know their sorrow. But the reverse is the case. The reverse is the case. And that can be intensely personal sometimes and... There's a fire in your life and you say that God just isn't seeing it, that God isn't hearing my prayer and God doesn't identify with my sorrow. Not so. Not so. I know their sorrows. In fact, in all their afflictions, I'm afflicted. <coughs> and what's more, I'm, I'm seeing the oppression. I'm seeing it. Don't think I'm not. 
just because I haven't intervened in the way that you expect me, don't think I'm not seeing it. And what's more, at last I'm hearing that cry, which is what I wanted to hear. The fire has burnt out their self-reliance and it's creating a sense of dependence. I am hearing a cry. <clears throat> Believe me, Moses, I am purifying and purging them. Now, of course, Moses, as we'll see, is still not satisfied. He's got something to say. There's going to be what we call a pushback. But let's make no mistake that that's what the burning bush is actually teaching. And so we're thankful to God. If you've got God in your heart, he burns. And and remember that. He's burning in his holiness. But remember too that that's working for you. It's working for you and not against you. May the Lord bless our thoughts. Let's stand and call on his name and pray. Oh Lord, we recognise that uh, one day, if we are not in Christ, then surely the fire will consume. But if we are in Christ, it will only cleanse and purge and purify. And we pray for confidence, knowing that this work is ongoing, even if it is sometimes painful. We ask, Lord, that you would bless our meditation upon the truth. May it make your covenantal obligation to your people more and more plain. For nothing can befall us except what works for our well-being. Take away our sins, purge them away and cleanse them. In the Saviour's precious name we pray. Amen. singing is in Psalm 2. Psalm 2. The psalm opens with um, a universal rebellion against God. Just a rejection of his law and of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 4, God responds, He that in heaven sits shall laugh. Because sin is not just evil, it's ridiculous too. And the Lord shall scorn them all. Then shall he speak to them in wrath. In rage he vex them shall. And one of the things... He tells the people is in verse 10, Therefore, kings, be wise, be taught, ye judges of the earth. Serve God in fear, worship him in fear, and see that you join trembling with your mirth, with your joy. That's the strange spice that we spoke of. Kiss ye the sun, that's the kiss of allegiance, lest in his anger you perish from the way, if once his wrath, as a consuming fire, begins to burn. Blessed all that on him stay. Now we'll sing three stanzas. We'll sing verses four and five, that's one stanza, and then we'll sing the last two stanzas from verse ten. We stand and sing. <coughs> <coughs> Be 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.